Well, good morning. You may be seated. As we're singing that song, I, I just couldn't help but think and, and say, man, I, I really wish Lynn had some lungs on that. I was just really lacking on that, right? Well, excited to be back with you and back in our series here in Colossians. And today we're going to be talking about relationships. So the title of the message, for those of you taking notes, is Relationship Advice. And there are special rewards in heaven for all who take notes. So take out your pens. Let's pray together and we'll launch into this text today. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Thank you for how you have met with us already, and I pray that you would meet with us through the proclamation of your word. Lord, would you hide me behind the cross of Jesus Christ, which are open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a quick Google search of the phrase relationship advice gives a cool 800 million hits. Seems that the human species, relationships are a universally hot topic, and understandably so. Uh, just consider some of the most significant moments in your life. Didn't the vast majority of these events occur within the context of some meaningful relationship with family or friends or a romantic interest or a co-worker? In light of this, it is unsurprising that the Bible has some profound things to say about relationships. But as, Lord willing, you have come to expect, the Bible consistently speaks to our common issues in what I would refer to as rather uncommon ways. So let's back up before we dive into verses 18 and following and kind of set the tone of what's going on here with Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Here's what the text says there. So if you have been raised with Christ or since you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, since believers have been given new life, they are to live in new ways. Since you are dead with Christ and you've been raised with Christ, that is to affect the way that you live your life on a daily basis. Or to put it very simply, new life leads to new behaviors. And we see this all through Colossians chapter 3. In verse number 5, this new life transforms our desires. In verses 8 and 9, this new life transforms our speech. In verse 11, it revolutionizes our identity. In verse number 12 through 15, it impacts our character. And in verses number 16 and 17, it shifts our source of joy. The new life that we have in Christ has influence and fingers into every single aspect of our lives. Several years ago, when Calvin was about to be born, he's 14 now, I broke this little teeny bone in my right arm. For those of you that are physicians here, they, they, they sometimes call it the snuff box. I broke just a little tiny bone in my arm. I was playing basketball and I fell on it and it just, little hairline fracture in it. Well, what ended up happening is I had a cast on for eight weeks because the blood supply was low and it healed very slow. And that cast went from right here to the middle of my hand all the way up to my shoulder for this little thing. My wife's about to have a baby. Let me tell you something that impacted every area of my life. 
I couldn't type. And for a guy who writes sermons for a living, that was challenging. I couldn't eat. And for a guy who eats to live, I guess, that, that was a problem. I, I, my wife had to cut my food up. And since we had a little one at the time, I still remember this. Ian was just a baby. And so Trisha would cut up my food. And it'd be like in these little minuscule bites. And I was like, thank you, honey, so much for making sure I don't choke on those. There were so many things that I couldn't do because my arm was in this cast. And then one day something happened, right? That cast got taken off. And all of a sudden, in one sense, my life was changed. Things that I took for granted before, things that I was unable to do, things that were beyond my capacity, all of a sudden were influenced because this cast was off my arm. And that is just a picture of what happens to those in Jesus. When you encounter Christ, every aspect of your life has changed. So unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, the Lord wants us to see the far-reaching implications of his new life that he has given to us. Or if we could just use a very simple word picture, it would be this. When Christ takes up residence in a believer, he does not simply redecorate, he totally renovates. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just throw a throw pillar there or hang a picture over there. He knocks down walls. He rips out pipes. He changes the entire layout of your life. If you have trusted in Christ, every aspect of your life is to be influenced, impacted, and transformed. Jesus has the deed to our life, and therefore he has authority over every room, every closet, and every corner. Or as the title of our series says, Christ is literally over all. Oh, he's in charge. There is no part of our life in which Christ does not hold sway. He is king of all. This truth then obviously has implications for our relationships. Which brings me to my point this morning. And it is simply this. All our relationships must be transformed by our relationship with Christ. All of our relationships, every relationship that you have should be transformed by your relationship with Christ. Or to make it deeply personal, your relationship with Jesus transforms your relationship with others. You should be a different husband, a different wife, a different parent, a different child, a different employer, a different employee because you have a relationship with Jesus. If you have a relationship with Christ, that vertical relationship spills over into your vertical or your horizontal relationships. So at least in my mind, as I'm beginning to think about this concept, how are all of these relationships impacted by this relationship? I mean, what does that look like? I, I get the idea, right? Like, man, if we're a Christian, it should have influence in our life. But how? How does that flesh itself out? How does a Christian husband look different than an unbelieving husband? How does a Christian employee look different than an unbelieving employee? Where do these things make the difference? One way we could answer this question from this text is by looking at the series of relationships. Did you notice that as Rod read it? There was a series of relationships out, outlined. Husband, wife, um, Parent, child, master, slave. 
One way we could walk through this text is to take each of those in turn. And that's a great way to do that. We've done it before at Gospel Hope. We'll do it again. But that's not what we're going to do today. What I want to do today is look at all of these relationships as a whole and say, okay, what principles can we derive from how a person's relationship with Christ changes every relationship? So the idea is this. No matter what season in life you are, no matter what your unique series of relationships that you have, this text has a word for you because it gives us some principles that tell us how our relationships should be changed because of our relationship with Jesus. So let's go this morning. What do relationships transformed by Christ look like? Three things I want to point out. When you have a relationship with Christ, it gives you a new expectation for all of your other relationships. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, did you notice in the passage that basically each of these roles and relationships are kind of given like a one-sentence one job description? Did you catch that? Look back at the text, verse 18 of chapter 3. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter to them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Verse number four, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. It's as if Paul is kind of in rapid fire succession saying, let me give you the basic the gist of what it means to be a Christian husband, a Christian wife, a Christian parent, a Christian child, a Christian servant, a Christian master. What does that look like? And brothers and sisters, whether you realize it or not, that fact that God in his word clearly gives us expectations for these relationships is a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous gift. Let me explain. To say that we live in a day that is experiencing confusion about roles and relationships would be an understatement. In our society, there is a wide spectrum of opinion about gender, sexuality, authority, commitment, responsibility, and roles in relationships. Just spend a few minutes watching the most popular TV shows or movies on Netflix. And no doubt, within a very short period of time, you will realize that the prevalent mindset about relationships in our culture is fluid. It's fluid. Like there is a lot of different opinions, and it's changing all the time. Now hear me clearly on this. This certainly is not all bad. Look, we should not be traditional for tradition's sake. Amen? We're not just like wooden traditionalists. We don't just do things one way because we've always done them that way. That's not godly. That's just, that's just as much going with the culture as changing all the time is going with the culture. We're not traditionalists for traditionalists' sake. Nevertheless, I think there are many people and sincere followers of Christ included in that number who are struggling in their relationships because they do not understand. They don't have a picture of what a Christ-centered relationship looks like. And that's why God in his word is so kind to us to just very briefly say, husbands, this is what it looks like. 
Wives, this is what it looks like. Parents, children, employers, bosses, employees, team managers, this is what it looks like. Here is a standard of truth that it looks like to live godly in my sight. In my opinion, the saddest book in the Bible, let's take a poll, just shout it out. What do you think the saddest book in the Bible is? Go. Okay, my vote, and I'm speaking so I win, um, is Judges. Judges is terrible. I mean, if you read through the book of Judges, God's people are doing all kinds of awful things. You get to the end of the book and you're like, what is going on? This is atrocious. But throughout the book of Judges, there is this oft-repeated line. And it goes something like this. Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says it this way. In those days... There was no king in Israel. And what was the result? Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. In other words, the lack of clear direction, the lack of clear expectations, the lack of clear here's what it means to follow God led to a cycle of self-destructive self-determinism. I do not think we're far from this reality today. We live in a society where everyone is doing that which is right in their own eyes, and this shows up in relationships. It's why marriages are a mess. It's why employees hate their employers. It's why parents are at their children's throat and vice versa, because everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. There's no king in America, and everyone does whatever their heart seems right. But here... God has kindly says, ah, 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 ah. You don't do whatever you want in your marriage. I'm king over your marriage. And husbands, here's your responsibility. And wives, here's your responsibility. You don't do whatever you want, parents and children. You don't parent however you want. Parents, here's your responsibility. Children, you're not free to just go do whatever you want either. Here's what you do in your, towards your parents. Isn't this a gift? It's kind of the Lord to tell us what we ought to do. The, the Lord in his kindness has clearly said, hey, the role of a godly wife is to follow her husband. The role of a husband is to love his wife. The role of a child is to obey his parents. The role of a parent is to nurture their children. The role of an employee is to serve their employers. And the role of employers is to treat their employees fairly. Here's the thing. These expectations are not put on us as a burden from the Lord. The Lord's not trying to make your life harder by giving you expectations. What the Lord is doing is he is giving you freedom. They're not meant to be a frustration, but a freedom to you. Here is God's directives for our lives. Listen. These directives, these expectations are not given us to some wise leadership guru. They're given to us by the creator of the world, the one who made us. And let me say this statement very plainly. The creation flourishes when the creator is followed. When you embrace the roles that the creator of those roles has ordained, then you will flourish. This is God's design for us. And so in our relationships, we, would we should try to get in line with the expectations laid out for us by the Lord himself. And the other day, my son Peyton and I were down in the basement working. And there was a screw sticking out of the board. And Peyton grabbed a hammer and started whacking on the screw. 
Yeah, just as hard as he can. And guess what happened? Nothing. Screw's not going anywhere when you hit it with a hammer. Why? Because hammers drive in. And in order to drive in a screw, you need what? So I said, hey, Pate, that's not a nail. That's a screw. And he said, oh, so what? I said, well, you need a screwdriver, son. So he goes over and he gets a screwdriver. And guess what? He starts working on the screw. And guess what happens? Well, he injures himself. But after that, (laughs) after that, he is able to drive the screw into the board. Why? Because screwdrivers were created by the designer of screwdrivers to screw screws. (laughs) And hammers were created by the designer of hammers to do what? To hammer nails. Look, Brothers and sisters, this is God, the one who created us. And he says, look, husbands, here's what you're supposed to be. Look, wives, here's what you're supposed to be. What's the meaning? It's simply this. If you're a screwdriver, drive screws into boards and rejoice. If you're a hammer, drive nails into boards and rejoice because that is what you are created to do. Don't try to do something you weren't made to do. If you belong to Christ, you don't have to figure out your role. You don't have to define what your role is. You simply have to learn to walk more deeply in what God himself has called you to do. I believe there is great freedom in that reality. One of the joys of being a Christian One of the joys of being a child of God is that we have a father who tells us the right way to go. This is a blessing. We don't have to figure out this relationship because relationships are hard. They're tough. You don't have to create the playbook. God has already given us the playbook and our role is to simply walk in the playbook that he has outlined for us. This is a gift from the Lord to us. Second, Not only has God given us new expectations in our relationships, but he's given us a new orientation. What do you mean by that? Apart from Jesus, the question we would fundamentally ask about relationships is this. What do I get out of this person? Right? Come on, be honest. Apart from Jesus, the question we would ask about all our relationships would be this. What do I get out of this person? You might say, well, that's awfully cynical, Ryan. That's not how I am. Oh, yeah? Think about it for a moment. Before you intentionally spend time with another person, don't you ask questions like, do I enjoy being around this person? Can this person help me out in my career? Will this person connect me with someone else that I need to get to know? Does this person make me laugh? Does this person make me feel good? Does helping this person make me feel good about myself? Now, I'm not saying all of those things are intrinsically evil. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is they are intrinsically selfish. They're all driven by a desire to make ourselves feel better or have pleasure from a relationships. But here's what Jesus does. He turns these priorities completely upside down. This is particularly true when it comes to those in positions of authority. Look at the text. Look at the text. This is amazing. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Whoa, 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 whoa. Husbands, you're not just supposed to look out for yourself anymore. You're actually supposed to be interested in her. Don't be bitter towards her. 
Verse number 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Why? So your home will be peaceful? No, no, no. So they don't become discouraged. You see what changed there? The orientation is all of a sudden towards the children and not towards the father themselves. Or masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly. Hey, you better be looking out for them. You better watch out for those under your charge. That is your responsibility. Your orientation in your relationships is to be for the good of others. Or to put it plainly, relationships are not primarily about what you can get from others, but about what you can give to others. That's how Jesus transforms our relationships. All of a sudden, we start looking at at, at other people, not as tools to get us what we want, but as people made in the image of God that we can bless. It's a whole new orientation. When you become a believer, Christ turns, I am going to go down before the sermon is over. Christ turns our relationships upside down. Jesus himself said it this way. Look at Matthew, Mark chapter 10. You know that those who are regarded as rulers as the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrant over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all. Christian relationships, we enter into relationships not because of what we can get, but because of the opportunity to give to others. Let me show you with just a little graphic that hopefully will illustrate this principle here. So in the world, when we think of leadership this way in the world, I get to be a leader so that I could get others to serve me, to do what I want, to bless me. So we got arrows going up there. So our disposition is is fundamentally, I'm in leadership, so now you do what I say for my good, for my blessing. But here's what Jesus is saying. Oh, no. If you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want to have true leadership in my kingdom, what you do is you actually turn those arrows upside down. You're in leadership now so that you can leverage your influence, leverage your position, leverage your authority, leverage everything that you are and all that God has made you to be, not to get from other people, not to bend them to your will, but in order to be a blessing towards other people. You are in leadership, not, not so others can serve you, but so that you can serve others. As Jesus said, even the Son of Man, even Christ himself, did not come to serve, but what? Or, I'm sorry, did not come to be served, but what? But to serve. And he showed the ultimate act of service by giving his life a ransom for many. If you truly want to have Christian relationships, start believing that it is more blessed to give than to receive. We have to believe that in our heart, and it's not just about what we put in the offering plate, it's how we treat other people. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Godly authority is far more like a ladder to help others up than a club to keep others down. We should be saying, how can I use all that God has made me to be to help others, to bless others, to encourage others, to build others up, not how can I get in my position of authority so I can keep others down and use them for my own benefit. Gospel Hope, how are you leveraging your various positions of authority? Let me ask this question very pointedly. Brothers, married brothers right now, is your wife better because of you 
Not in spite of, but because of you. Moms and dads, are your kids thriving? I don't mean they get everything they want. I mean, are they growing in their relationship with God, in the relationship with the world? Are they growing? Are they thriving? Not in spite of you, but because of you. Professionals, you work a job out there. Are your colleagues helped because you're on their team? Because you have authority in that position? Are other people being built up because you are there? God has given you a rich trust of relationship. Think about relationships as like money in the bank. Are you hoarding those for your own consumption? Or are you leveraging what you've been given for the benefit of others? Those relationships are a gift of God to you. And if we are to have Christ-centered relationships, other people should be built up because we are present in their life. Number three, it gives us a new motivation. I want to point out one final and probably the most noticeable way that Christ transforms our relationships in this passage. That is, when we trust in Jesus, Christ gives us a whole new motivation for the way we treat one another. Huh. Instead of simply telling us to treat one another so that our lives will run more smoothly or we can feel better about ourselves, Paul calls us to a hugely higher motivation. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands. Why? As is fitting to the Lord. Verse number 20, children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Verse number 22, slaves, obey your human master in everything. Don't work while only being watched as people pleasers, but work hard wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive your reward of inheritance from the Lord. And then to summarize it all, you serve the Lord Christ. Verse number one of chapter four. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly since you know that you too have a master in heaven. In other words, brothers and sisters, if you've trusted in Jesus, there ought to be a Godward focus to every single one of your relationships. Or to put it another way, our love for other people is a reflection of our love for God. The way you treat other people shows the way that you are treating God himself. Or as 1 John says it, 1 John chapter 4, verse number 20, for the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen. These are strong words, by the way cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. The way that we love God in this world is by loving other people. The implication is this. You should not treat your spouse well, but primarily because they deserve it. You should not honor your parents primarily because they're cool. I know that's your motivation, Geneva. I know, I know. You should not care for your kids primarily because they're obedient. You should not submit to your boss because he's the best. You should not invest in your work team because they're high performing. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should do all of these things. But not fundamentally because people are deserving. You should do all of these things because God is deserving. We should treat other people in godly, loving ways, not because they deserve it, but because God deserves it. Wives, 
you honor God by following your husband. Husbands, you honor God by loving your wife. Kids, you honor God by obeying your parents. Parents, you honor God by encouraging your kids. Employees, you honor God by listening to your boss. Bosses, you honor God by being kind to your employees. Sometimes we think about worship as what we do on Sundays. And, and listen, there is something unique and wonderful that we do here for an hour or an hour and a half as we gather on Sunday mornings. But the way you treat other people from Monday to Saturday is also a means of worshiping the Lord. This note is struck in verse 23. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Listen to me very carefully. Cultivating godly relationships is an act of worship. Men, if you treat your wife like garbage all week long, and then come in here on Sunday and sing praises, in one sense, God is like, I don't care. You're not worshiping me Monday to th Saturday. Don't think you could slap a Band-Aid on it right now. Wives, if you are nitpicking or digging at your husband all week and then you lift your hands during our songs, the Lord is like, listen, listen, go cleanse your hands, then lift them. Man, if you are a te terrible boss, if you're a jerk to those under your charge, if you are a terrible teammate that complains about everything that your boss says, you gossip at the water cooler, don't come in here and be like, man, I'm going to get my worship on this morning. You should have been worshiping God 9 to 5 Monday through Friday. Because cultivating godly relationships is an act of worship. It is how we please the Lord. The Lord is pleased when we treat one another according to his directives. The Lord is honored. The Lord is glorified when we love and be kind and treat one another as he has called us to do. For me, this has a couple of profound implications. It simply raises the stakes. Relationships matter deeply. They matter deeply. I can't be ignoring my wife, berating my children, routinely wasting time at work and enjoying sweet fellowship with God. Those two things are mutually exclusive. The condition of your relationship with others indicates the condition of your relationship with God. Do you understand me on that? You can't have bad relationships this way and have a good relationship this way. They are mutually exclusive ideas. They go together. And if you're just chopping down all these relationships, you aren't enjoying this relationship. They go together. God cares so much about this that here's the way Jesus says it. I mean, this is shocking the way Jesus says it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So if you're offering a gift on the altar, I mean a deeply spiritual thing, you're giving your offering here. If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what does he say? Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister. Then come off your gift. Woo! Don't even put your money in the offering plate until you get your relationships right. 
That's how serious the Lord is about this. You please me by having right relationships. And look, we're Protestants. We don't do penance. Say, what do you mean by that? No amount of money you put in the offering plate makes your relationships right. No amount of time working down in kids makes you be a good husband or a good parent or a good father. Brothers and sisters, we have to be serious about these things and say, my relationships matter deeply. It raises the stakes. And the second thing is this, the second implication, it removes the pressure. That sounded really high pressure, what I just said, and it is. But, but think about it this way. I don't have to determine who's deserving or undeserving of my respect or honor or obedience. The, the text actually says the Lord will sort that out. He'll repay the evildoer. He'll take care of that. I, I don't have to do that. My responsibility is to show clear, to clearly honor the Lord in the way I treat others. To me, this is terribly liberating. I mean, this feels so freeing to me. Look, I don't have to keep score. I don't have to be like, man, is, uh, is, do, do I really need to bless Nick today? I don't know if he's deserving or not. I'm just like, scoreboard, throw that thing away. I'm, my responsibility is clear, just bless Nick. My wife said all those unkind things to me. She didn't, but... I don't have to be like, where are the scales? You know, come on, you know, you all got the scales. Did she do me more wrong? Did I do her more wrong? Who needs to apologize first? Who needs to settle that? No, just take the scales, melt them down, make something nice for her and give it to her. You get the idea? Like, we don't have to keep score. We're just free to be like, the Lord will take care of all of that. Relationships matter deeply, and my obligation is to treat other people with kindness, respect, and love. That is what God is calling to me. Don't come in here with your scorecard, brothers and sisters. Just get rid of those things. And if you've been keeping score on your boss, or your friend, or your wife, or your husband, or your child, or your parent, go home and throw it in a barrel and burn it. Let's get rid of those scorecards and say, my obligation is clear. I am simply to honor the Lord in the way that I treat other people. So you may hear all this and find yourself asking, why does God care so much about this? Ryan, that seems hard. I mean, you're saying I'm not a good Christian just because I come to church? Yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to have relationships that are healthy and godly and we're striving to love other people and be kind to other people. Why is this such a big deal to the Lord? Perhaps a letter from the second century describing the early church will illustrate this for me. This was written by an outsider kind of looking in at the Christian church in the second century. Here's what it says. Christians are not distinguished from other men by country language nor by the custom with which they observe they do not inhabit cities of their own or use a particular way of speaking or lead a life marked out by any curiosity and it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing and food and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us a wonderful and admittedly striking way of life in other words they don't live in a particular region they don't wear a certain kind of clothes or eat a certain kind of food or speak a special Christian language. But they're different. How do they distinguish themselves? How did these early Christians stand out in the world? Here's what the letter goes on to say. As citizens, they to participate in everything with others. 
yet they endure everything as if they were foreigners. They marry like everyone else and they have children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws, all the while suppressing the laws with their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet they are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted as Greeks. Yet those who hate them are really unable to give a reason for their hatred. How did the early church distinguish itself? It was by their relationships. They were good countercultural citizens of a kingdom. They were godly, loving husbands and wives, faithful to one another. They were parents who didn't abuse their children, but actually nurtured them and take care of them. When they worked for other people, they did, they worked hard. When they employed other people, they were just in their employment. Believers showed themselves as different by the way that they interacted with other people. And if that was true 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters, it ought to remain true today. We ought to be known not by the weird clothes that we wear or the strange language we speak. We ought to be known for the way that we treat one another, the relationships that we are have that stand in stark contrast to the way that the world treats one another. God is made known in the world today through the love of his people. Friends, brothers, sisters, God is invisible, but we are his body. We are his hands. We are his feet. And if we want the world to see what our great God is like, we have to love other people. Christians should be the best spouses because we want the world to see that there's a greater bridegroom who loves them far than, more than they could imagine. Christians should be great children and great parents. Why? Because we want people to see that there is one true father who cares for his children with unstoppable compassion. Christians should be great managers in employees and team members and employers. Why? Because we want people to see that there is a Lord in heaven who rules and reigns with perfect wisdom and inexhaustible generosity. All of our relationships this way are meant to be signposts to the relationship this way. All the ways we interact with one another is meant to point other people to the way that the one from heaven has interacted with us. Brothers and sisters, cultivate, transform relationships. Yes, yes, for yourself. Yes, for your husband. Yes, for your wife. Yes, for your friends. Yes, for your parents. Yes, for your children. Yes, for your employer. Yes, for your employees. Yes, do it for all of them. But ultimately, cultivate godly relationships for God and for the world he came to save. We are the way that God is meant to be made known in the world. And if we don't treat one another right, if we don't have godly relationships, them, those out there apart from Jesus, will never see the greatness of our God. Relationship matters. It matters so deeply, not just because it makes our lives easier or more comfort, 
But relationships matter because it is a means by which God means to make himself glorious in the world. So Gospel Hope, let's have transformed relationships. Let's live different because we've been made different. Our new life should lead to new behaviors. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. And I pray that we would be transformed by the work of the cross. Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.